Good morning. You know, every now and then my family, usually my kids, they send me a video and they say, Dad, this is sermon worthy. Uh, I don't know if this one is or not, but let's see. If, if it's not, let's blame them, okay? But let's watch. Are you smart? Yeah. Are you strong? Yeah. Are you brave? Yeah. Are you pretty? Yeah. Are you kind? Now, we laugh at that, right? But her response is kind of refreshing. Uh, she knows her own heart well and, and just comes clean about it, uh, unlike uh, some adults that I know. And uh, it, it reminds us right, of a very famous person in the Bible who took a long time to see his own heart clearly, but, but eventually he came clean. You know, this summer we've been looking at different psalms in the Bible, and so there's psalms of lament, and there's psalms of joy, there's even psalms that help us to, when we struggle with envy of other people, and today we're going to look at one that teaches us how to come clean, how to draw near to God, and to repent after we've sinned. Psalm 51. And it may be one of the most famous psalms in all of the Bible, and for good reason, because it's given comfort to sinners for almost 3,000 years. And let me just say up front here, as I think about my own life, I need this psalm. I think that you need this psalm. And if you don't think that, be glad that someone else is here in the crowd today. You know, if you're thinking they need to repent, you know, one of these kind of things. But if we know our own hearts well, and if we know how prone we are to sin and love other things besides God, we realize why we need this song. Because the Bible teaches us what, what Francis Schaeffer used to say is that we're all a glorious ruin. Like David, as we're going to see, we're all capable of doing great good. But we're also capable of committing the worst of sins. And so what do we do when that happens? Well, thankfully, we have Psalm 51. See, the title of it gives us the context. It says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, here's a story. If you're not familiar with it, it reads a little bit like a, a soap opera, if you will. But David was the greatest king in all of Israel's history. I was there a few weeks ago with a team from the crossing, and if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see monuments that, that are dedicated to him. And the Bible also tells us that he was a good king. The Bible says he was, in fact, a, a man after God's own heart, which is, which is pretty high praise. But we're told that one day he stayed behind in Jerusalem and he let his commander lead his army out against the enemy. And we recognize as we read that in 2 Samuel 11 that something's going on in his heart. Something's not right. He's at the pinnacle of his career. He's probably in his mid-40s or 50s. He's reached the top, but something's not right in his life. 
And while his men were out in, bat, on, in the battlefield, he sees from the rooftop a beautiful woman bathing down below. And instead of just kind of, you know, thinking at that point, there's a beautiful woman and I'm going to leave it at that, the Bible says that he wanted her. He desired her. And that was a huge mistake in his life. And so he sends out his lowly servant to find out who this woman is. And his servant, kind of recognizing what's going on in David's heart, that something's not right, he says this back to him. He says, isn't that Bathsheba? Isn't that the wife of Uriah the Hittite, your good friend? And isn't that the daughter of Eliam? In other words, here's this servant saying to him, hey, that's someone else's wife. That's someone's daughter. But it didn't matter to David. He summons for her. He sleeps with her. And by the way, there's a huge power differential going on in this relationship. I mean, he's the king. She can't say no after all. And so she sends back word to David Three words. It's the only time she speaks in the narrative, and she says this, I am pregnant. And instead of just, you know, coming clean at this point and owning his sin and stopping this right there, yes, of course, it would have been embarrassing. David keeps digging. And he tries to cover up his sin. He has Uriah come back from the battlefield, gets him drunk, thinking that he'll sleep with his wife. He doesn't do that. And so eventually, David has Uriah, his friend, killed out on the battlefield. And so David marries the widow Bathsheba. I mean, what a great guy, right? to step alongside and, and to comfort this widow. And he thinks that no one will ever know what he's done. But the Bible says that the Lord knew and the Lord was displeased. See, God always knows. God always knows our sin. We can't hide from him. But David had hardened his heart against God. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, he, he sends a, a prophet named Nathan to confront him. And, and he tells David a, a parable. Uh, why do you speak in parables? Well, you tell people parables because you don't want to just come out with a truth. You hope that by telling the parable, people will get the point and see themselves in the parable. And he tells him the, this parable of a poor man that had this lamb or this sheet, and they loved it so much that they would allow it to eat off their table. And, and the poor man would hold it close to his heart, which is kind of weird if you think about it, but, but it's a parable after all. And, and there was a rich guy, though, who had a bunch of his friends over, has a barbecue, and he takes the poor man's lamb and he barbecues it. And when David hears that, he says, what a great injustice. That man deserves to die. And Nathan's thinking, are you getting the point? But he doesn't. And so finally, Nathan says to David, David, you're the man. You're that, that guy. 
And it's in that moment that David is struck by what he's done, and he confesses his sin. It, it was as if a mirror had been held up to his face, and he finally saw who he really was. Who he really was. And in that moment, in the days ahead, in the dark days ahead, as he struggled with his guilt and with his shame over what he had done, he wrote the words to Psalm 51. This is what he wrote to us. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. And then we skip down later, verses 16 and 17. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Is there a better verse in all of the Bible than that one right there? See, David here is a model for us of how to repent after we've sinned. And I think that one of the reasons why we're told this story from the Bible, one of the reasons why the Bible gives us all of its dirt on its heroes is because in some sense they're like us. Maybe even worse than us. And I don't know what sins that you've committed. Maybe you're on a par here with David. Maybe you're even worse. But if David could find forgiveness and restoration and cleansing, then there's hope for you and me. But I think that it's really good for us to remind ourselves how we often wrongly respond to sin in our lives. See, like David, we tend to ignore our sin. We, we tend to compartmentalize it, like we've got our church life over here and we've got this whole area going on that we kind of ignore and act like it doesn't it exist. Or we rationalize our sin. We think, you know what, I, I'm not as bad as other people or everyone else is doing it, right? Or we say things like, I, you don't know the pressures that I'm facing as king. And it was Bathsheba's fault, after all. Well, it wasn't. But we like to blame others or our circumstances for our own sin, don't we? You know, as I think about my own life, I, I don't know really what I'm good at, but I think that my spiritual gift is blaming other people or circumstances for my sin. I do. I am really, really good at that. And I think I've passed that gene down to my kids as well. 
Or, you know, we think maybe we somehow don't deserve God's forgiveness and, and we, after what we've done or after what we continue to do, some sin, and we live with the shame of that. Or we think somehow, you know what, I've got to make this up to God. I've got to do something. I've got to have a record of victory here before I can come back to God. But you see, all of those responses keep us from true repentance and restoration. And that's why God gives us Psalm 51, to lead us back to intimacy with himself. And so what does repentance and coming back to God look like? Well, first of all, repentance begins when we humble ourselves and take ownership of our sin and recognize the true nature of it. See, David owns his sin right from the start. Notice the personal pronouns. He says what? It's my iniquity. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin. See, he's not blaming others. He's not blaming his circumstances. No, he takes full responsibility for what he's done. And that's a really good start. But he also knows that what he has done is in fact sin before God. And you're thinking right now, as you hear that, you're thinking, well, of course he did. But it's not of course, especially today. You know, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. And uh, it's kind of been fun uh, now as my kids have gotten older to watch that, the reruns of that show with them and that they enjoy the humor as well. But uh, of course, in the show, there's a guy named George Costanza. And by the way, if you haven't seen Seinfeld, then shame on you. I I can't help you at, at this point, right? But George always kind of lives in this pretend world. He always likes to lie usually to impress women. And so he'll make up things like he's an architect, right? Or or a marine biologist. And so in one of the episodes, he finds himself out on a beach with a date and there's there's a whale in distress. And so he finds himself trying to save this whale, right? But to justify these lies... He's sitting with Jerry one day in the coffee shop and he looks at Jerry and he says this. He says, you know what, Jerry? It's not a lie if you believe it in your heart to be true. It's not a lie if you believe it in your heart to be true. And we kind of laugh at that. And I'm not trying to blame all of society's ills on Seinfeld, okay? Hear me about that. But, but I think that what George is really saying is that all truth is kind of relative. It's up for grabs. Truth is just something, right, that, that we just pull out of the air from nowhere and want to believe, In other words, we can't really be certain about anything in life. My wife was telling me recently about a good friend of hers from college, went to a Christian college, been a Christian all of her life. She's walked away from the faith because she's bought into that. Well, we can't really. It's social norms that are impressed on people. We really can't know 
the truth. In other words, I think what she's thinking is that whatever makes you happy, whatever the heart wants, the heart wants. And so do that. But David here knows, right, that there must be a standard of right and wrong higher than his heart. He knows that there must be an objective moral lawgiver outside of himself, outside of the universe, whom he had to give an account to. Or if not, then what is right or what is wrong is just simply determined by those who have the most power, right? Politically. I don't know if you figured that out or not. But it's those who just simply tell us what is right or wrong. No, David knew that he was guilty before a just God. He was guilty before a just God. Guilty of at least two things here besides murder. I mean, we could talk about that. But first of all, he had distorted God's gift of sexuality. He had removed it, you see, from God's given place of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And there's always going to be consequences for that. Here, it's adultery. But maybe the most dangerous epidemic that's never talked about, it seems, around the topic of sexuality is pornography. If statistics are true, if the amount of money that's being made on pornography, then, then it affects more people than, than we might realize. And it's an epidemic. And let's be honest, it harms marriages. And it harms lives. And it harms our intimacy with God, doesn't it? You know that's true. But David, secondly, had also abused the gift of power and leadership. I mean, how, how often do we see this today in churches and in different organizations, right? He used people for his own ends and everybody in his sphere, everyone in his orbit, Bathsheba, Uriah, his servant, Joab, they get caught up in his distortion of reality and everybody in his circle has to go along with it because he's the one that has the power. Ever, ever experienced that in life? See, our sin always affects other people, never just ourselves. And if that's not bad enough, right? Those three things. The prophet Nathan tells David that the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the nations, among the pagans, because of what he's done. In other words, they mock our God. And the reality is, is hypocrisy isn't new. It's not new. It doesn't make it right. And you can't ultimately judge the truth of Christianity 
by some of the actions of its followers. And I think it's also true. Listen, if you're here and you're a skeptic and you're dismissing Christianity, I think it's also true. Someone once said, you know what? You can't judge Beethoven if you've never heard Beethoven by the way your son's eighth grade band plays it in a musical, right? No, you have to listen to Beethoven. And in the same way, you have to look at Jesus Christ and who he is. But hypocrisy always hurts the church. See, David knows his sin and he owns his sin. And not only that, in verse four, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now listen, David knows that he's hurt other people. Uriah is laying dead on the battlefield. He knows that he's hurt other people in his life, but what he means is that he knows that his sin was ultimately against God. His sin displeased God, the God of the universe who had blessed him and who had been so good to him and had provided everything that he had needed. See, David knew that his sins were not just against the law of God, not just against the Ten Commandments. And if you think about it, he probably broke all ten. He didn't sin just against the Ten Commandments, but he sinned ultimately against the love of God in his life. And that's what broke him. That's what hit him so hard. See, God's love was far from his mind when he sinned. And David had doubted, right, that follow, we always do this, that, that following God was for his good. He thought that he had to find happiness apart from God and God's moral will for his life. And we do the very same thing when we choose to sin. And he confesses that to God. But the second thing quickly that he does is he asks God for cleansing and for forgiveness and restoration. See, in verse seven, he says what? Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It's a great metaphor. He says, hide your face, Lord, from my sin. Let your joy and let your gladness return to me. See, here's David just crying out to God for forgiveness. But he knows that he can't fix what's broken. He knows that he can't make himself right with God. He says, right, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it, but a humble and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. See, that's what God's looking for in our life. Humility. 
And God's grace is David's only hope in his sin. God's grace that is the only thing that will free him from his shame. Notice here, he appeals back in, in verse one to God's compassion and God's unfailing love. After all of David's sins, he knew he still belonged to God. How? How can that be possible? Because God just can't overlook sin, right? If he's God. Well, what it cost God to forgive David and to forgive us was a sacrifice. See, Jesus lived the life that we know that we should live and he died the death that we deserve so that those who put their hope in him can be forgiven of their past sin and their present sin and even their future sin and have eternal life with God. And that's what David was counting on. And it's our only hope as well in our sin. See, David here repented and his fellowship, his joy with God was restored and he sings of God's goodness and grace in his life. It's an incredible story. It's a great story. It's a great outcome. Now hear me. David didn't escape the consequences of his sin. He still had right to live with those, and, and so do we. But God's story, God's plan for him wasn't over. And by God's grace, by God's grace, God's plan and God's story is not over for you and me when we sin because of Jesus. Because he's our sacrifice. And so this morning, what sin is hurting your fellowship with God? What sin does God have his finger on in your life that you've been ignoring and he wants you to deal with it? It's making you miserable. You know, one of the reasons why I so love taking the Lord's Supper is because it just gives us a moment to just kind of pause and to reflect and think about our lives and confess our sins to God. It's also a, a reminder to us of the cost, of what it costs God, his son, the sacrifice that was made so that we can be forgiven of our sins for all eternity. And it's also a reminder to us, right, that He's the bread of life that satisfies. It's not sin. We chase after mirages. We chase after things that we think are going to satisfy our soul. But this here reminds us that it's him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body 
that's given for you. The bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. We are all one body and we share one bread. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the wine and he poured it out into a cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This cup that we share together unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have died together. We will rise together. We will live together. Let us drink. Would you pray with me? Oh God, this morning, we thank you for your grace to sinners like us. Thank you for Jesus, that in him we can find satisfaction. Lord, as David prayed, give us hearts that desire to be obedient to you, to follow after you, no matter what it might cost. We love you, we praise you, we worship you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing? Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today.